This conference will now be recorded. All right, we've got a few of our late stragglers here. We're gonna go ahead and get started. And for those of you that come in as we go, we will put this up on YouTube. So let's get started. All right, Luann, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you back on another webinar talking about 1031s. I think that this is, oh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, no, I said thank you back. Oh, absolutely. So we're, we're at a unique crossroads right now. I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago with our last class, but although the market's very strong, a lot of people are getting wary with the election. And so personally, I've seen a little bit of an easier time getting property just the last few weeks. So I'm still seeing prices go up, but what I'm not seeing is as many offers and multiple offers on a lot of property. And I think part of it's the holidays coming up. I think part of it is people aren't really sure what's going on with the election. And we always kind of see a little bit of tumultuary in an election year. So all of that being said, the reason I wanted to talk about this is we have a lot of clients and I myself suffer from this too, that we bought properties a year or two ago, some of us even longer. We're sitting in a little bit higher interest rates. We've got a significant amount of equity in the property. And I keep hearing the same thing over and over. I'm a long-term hold investor. I'm a long-term hold investor. And I don't think that most investors look at the numbers in a property where you've got this equity sitting that's built up and how that compares to using a 1031 and building the portfolio, which those of you that buy with us and those of you that have been with us long enough to watch my classes, you know that that is what we do is our, our model is we 1031, we double, we 1031, we double. And some of us very lucky ones that bought in well and bought in at the right time, we've quadrupled and five times and so on and so on. And so now we're at this crossroads because values are high, rates are absolutely low. So those of us that you know bought in with rates at five and a half or six or heck, I remember when investors were getting almost seven, it's, it's a crossroads because either you have to refinance to take advantage of the lower rates, you sit where you are, which is what I'm seeing a lot of people do that's not what I recommend, or you capitalize on that equity. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today is how do the returns look if you capitalize on the equity versus if you sit in the deal, even if you refinance it. And then on top of that, how does the process work? Because I think a lot of people haven't done a 1031. A lot of people are still learning about them. There's something newer, I think, that more and more investors are becoming familiar with, but they think it's a difficult process. They think it's a time-consuming process. They think it's a scary process, especially for those that have predominantly been, for the last 10 or 20 years, buy and hold investors. And so we're going to start with talking a little bit about what a 1031 is and how it works, and then I'm going to talk about how we utilize it. So as always, I'm not going to read the whole disclaimer, but y'all know everything we talk about is our opinion. It's our best guess. There's no guarantees in anything in life. Of course, we all feel real estate is the safest investment you can make, and we do our best to guide you and give the right guidance and advice, not only as a property manager, but also as a licensee. But of course, do your own due diligence and buy at your own risk. So, Luann, start by telling me a little bit about you, your background, and your company. Um, well, I am a Chicago native, been in Texas 30, 30 plus years. We'll just leave it at that. Um, have been working with ERG for six years after having my own mobile notary company, which I still occasionally 
absolutely do. ERG is the best job I've ever had. Um, we're located in Denver. We are a full service qualified intermediary. And one of the rules of the exchange is that you use an intermediary to facilitate the exchange. So that is our job. And Leah, we met how many years ago? Three or four? It's been it's been a long time. It's been a long time. I think it's been actually since 2014, maybe 2013. It could have been. It could be that long. So yeah, right now I'm also a crazed football mom. I have a kid on the Detroit Lions, so I'm also following that um, journey as well. Fantastic. I see you going up there all the time. I can't even imagine how many miles you're getting right now. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I personally hate flying, but it's a necessary evil in life. So we're actually, we're going to California in, I don't know, two weeks to go speak out there and I hate that flight. It's just so miserable. And then having to make the leg from San Francisco to LA and then home. But, you know, at least you can do it in style, right? <laughs> you can do your best. I keep looking, looking for that person with their own plane. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I saw a thing where you can buy in memberships for, I don't know, some amount of money every month. It's relatively reasonable and get unlimited flights to so many areas. But I don't know, something about flying in a small plane just doesn't fit me. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's almost worse than risking delays. Agree, agree. So for those clients that really don't know what a 1031 is, let's kind of start at the bare basic. We're going to talk about what a 1031 is and why people use them. We're going to talk about how to determine if it's the right tool for you. We're going to talk about the requirements and the purposes and really how to keep what you have, get more if you want, and some updated law changes from 2018. So let's dive in. Number one, IRS code section 1031 definition is an exchange which pursuant to an agreement, the taxpayer transfers, and you can continue reading through here, but in layman's terms, it basically is that you're trading one property for another. And that word trade is key because I think a lot of people think that a 1031 is getting something tax-free. And that's not what a 1031 is. You are deferring what you're doing. And so, Luann, tell me a little bit about how it works. Let's go through this scenario that you've got here and, and talk about really what this means. So the 1031 exchange has been part of the IRS code since 1925. And it is a way for investors to defer their long-term capital gains. So we just have this example here showing we're kind of guesstimating long-term capital gains rate on a property that you've owned for a little bit more than a year at approximately 20%. This is a very rough example. Um, and long-term capital gains rate varies state by state. So we're going to go with 20% assuming a, pro a property in Texas. We've got two investors, A and B. One does a 1031 exchange and B does not. So instead of paying that 20% on their gain, investor A has 100,000 to invest, put 20% down on a loan. Again, this is a rough estimate. So they could buy property worth half a million using the exchange. If they don't and they pay the tax, then after tax, they've got 80 and they would qualify for property worth about 400,000. And then if you wanna go to the next slide, assume five years down the road, and again, many assumptions, we're assuming that the value of the property is gonna go up 5% per year. 
Um, they sell again. Investor A keeps going, defers the tax, has 138,000. After tax investment can qualify for 600, almost 700,000 worth of property and has paid zero in tax, where B has paid 42,000 in tax and is at a portfolio worth 442,000. And then and if I, you go, I, go ahead, I, Leah. So just to stop for a moment, I want you to think about this for a minute. That's $250,000 by not using 1031s and just by doing normal sales, rebuys as you see fit, you've lost out on $250,000 income producing. And I want you to keep that number in mind because when we look at the comparison a little bit later on with me between the leverage model where you 1031 and you go buy again versus sitting in that $250,000 of property, I want you to think about how much income you're losing, not just the tax you paid, but that $250,000 in property you could have income producing this entire time. So let's keep going. Okay, so we're just gonna go a little bit further down the road to show you how this can compound. This is year 10, so if you started 10 years ago, you sell again in year 10, and again, the property, we're assuming property value is gonna go up 5%, so you look at A is at 881, B is at 564, after the 1031 exchange process or not. A is holding property worth 954,000 has paid zero in tax. B is still under half a million and has paid 66.5 in tax. So when we're looking at this, you said assuming it goes up 5%, is that 5% a year or 5% total across the entire term from last to this? 5% a year. Perfect. And the other thing too is this does not take in depreciation recapture because we couldn't figure out how to do that. But in addition to long-term capital gains tax, if you don't do a 1031 exchange, the government is going to ask for 25% of any depreciation recapture. So that figure is not included in this. And for some of the people that are on this, this webinar are new investors. And so when we talk about depreciation, Anytime you own real estate, and we can look at residential as an example, you are getting a percentage of the value of that property as depreciation on your tax return. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about this later, but the more property you own, the more depreciation you get. But if you sell the property and you wind up paying taxes on it, if you've claimed depreciation, then that recapture essentially means you're paying some of that back. That's correct. Um, and then if you really started, well, one more in the 20-year model, you can see the discrepancy is just amazing. Another thing to keep in mind, too, if you're looking long-term for investment, and I think we'll hit on an example on this later, but when you leave this earth and leave your property to your heirs, they're going to inherit the property at the value it is on the day that they inherit it, not on the original basis 20 years ago. So that's something real key to keep in mind when you're doing retirement planning or estate and the, planning. And the other thing that you wanna look at at this, for those of you that are long-term buy and hold investors, and even if we go back here to the 10-year, because this is probably more reasonable with most people who are currently buy and hold investors, person B, investor B, it's not just about the fact that they 1031 to defer their taxes, but it's also about how much in property they had. 
So if we go back to the beginning where they just started out, you'll see that they started with a property of $100,000 and they were able to leverage into $500,000. So essentially, you look at someone who has $100,000 and they were able to get into $500,000 in property. And so this is a lot of what we're gonna be talking about later is what you can do by just selling and taking out that equity to leverage. So now if we kick forward to year 10, look at the amount of property that person has. So they've literally doubled the amount of property that they can have just by doing this model and that's at a 5% increase a year. Now we may or may not see 5% increase a year. We've seen years at 20 or 30 lately. We've seen years at three to five. And so, you know, it all depends on what the market is doing but regardless, there is a significant difference between sitting in a property and utilizing 1031 exchanges, not only to defer your taxes, but also to increase your portfolio. And so that's something very important and integral to why we do what we do. So let's talk about the basic requirements for a 1031. And I'll let you go over these, Luann. Um, I think we're gonna go over them slide by slide, right? Um, we I've consolidated it a bit for this webinar because I've got so much to present. Okay, so. all right, then I'll go over them on this slide. So any property held for business trade and in, or investment can be exchanged for any property held for business trade or investment. It does not necessarily mean single family for single family. That's a common misunderstanding. Um, it is single family to multifamily, multifamily to bare land. In Texas, it can be if you own oil and gas mineral rights and you want to exchange those, you can sell those. Those are called, that is real estate in Texas and several other states. We're located in, in Denver and in Colorado, water rights is our real estate. So um, it's a lot broader than, thanks Leah, um, than anybody anybody thinks usually. So rental property is always an investment. Bare land is always an investment because why else would you buy dirt except for investment? Exactly. And one thing my husband Michael always says for those of you that have heard him speak is his fear with the stock market and all the other investment opportunities that are out there is at the end of the day, it literally can be worth zero. <laughs> we experienced that about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, we got an itch and we bought a bunch of stock in some of the car companies. And he loves to tell this story because it was my idea and I was young and naive and we knew real estate was great, but you always hear, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And lo and behold, we had stocks go to zero dollars. And that is the very real risk with anything that's not property, because it doesn't matter if your house burns down. It doesn't matter if, you know, something crazy happens, a tornado goes through, you have insurance, you file a claim. Even if you don't have insurance, you still have a lot. So really even worst case scenario, you're always going to have some value in real estate. And that is the difference between real estate and just about any other investment that there is. And then on top of that, of course, you get to depreciate on your taxes, which is huge. Now, this is the one that so <laughs> worry about, and this is the call I get every day. How can I be sure I'm going to find a property? How long do I have? So let's talk about it. When we're looking at a 1031 exchange, the timeline begins from the time that you close on the property you're selling, not from the time that you get the property under contract. That's number one. That's a big misconception I hear. Now, Luann, does it start at the time that they sign on the papers or does it start at the time that it funds? Starts on the date of the settlement statement. So that's how we have to document it. Yep, yep. exactly. 
Now, we have to document it in your file in case you're ever audited and the IRS requests records, although the odds of you getting audited are not high, but that is the date that we use. And, and that's calendar days. One thing I talk about a lot with 1031 exchanges is there's a lot that's gray. So there's a lot of things that are open to interpretation and open to, I, I ran into a situation with a 1031 intermediary where they weren't willing to do one thing that another intermediary was. And this is one of the reasons why I love Luann and her group ERG is because they're very, they make everything very easy. They handhold you through the process and they'll answer your questions and it's simple understanding of the law. And a lot of companies don't operate that way. I've also noticed a big difference in where the companies are centered. So a company that's centered in California, I found to be more conservative perhaps, or a more conservative interpretation of the law than what Luann and ERG is. And at the end of the day, it's all about being able to support what you did if you get audited, because that's really when this comes into play. And so although I haven't ever had a client audited on a 1031 that I'm aware of, we want to make sure that whoever you're using is dotting the I's and crossing the T's if and when that does happen. So one and of the this, things... Oh, no, I was just going to say, this is one of the things that is not gray, though. It's on this 45 days. Right. So yeah. this one and then the other timeline, very, very black and white. And so a lot of people, they'll come to me day 35, day 40, and they'll be like, well, I'm just going to identify a whole bunch of properties and one of them will go through. Tell me why they can't do that. Well, I think the IRS put this rule in there whenever they put it in there to keep people from doing just that and tying up the market or putting money down on 20 different properties. So the rule is there. It says if you identify one or two or three different properties and there is no cap on the value per property. So if you sell your $100,000 house and you find three properties worth $10 million each and you can do it, go for it. But once you go over three, the 200% rule kicks in and we have to take your sales price. So let's use that 100,000 again and multiply it times two to get 200%. So that'd be 200,000. You find five properties you wanna put on your list the sum total purchase price, not the ARV, it's the purchase price of all those properties cannot be, cannot exceed 200% of your sales price. So I have a good example of this. I sold a project. I do a lot of 1031s. I think I've probably done 12 this year with you. I think um, you have. Um, so one of them that I did was a half a million dollar property. And we see this a lot when you're smelling, selling small multifamily. What I did was I sold one small multifamily for half a million of four doors, and I was able to take that and turn it into seven single family homes. And I think I was at 197%. You were was, very close because we talked about it. <laughs> and it was down to the wire. And uh, that being said, we did turn one property into seven. And that can happen, it can be done. We do things like that all the time. Generally, when you're selling a single family, you're really not gonna go beyond three or four just because the value is not high enough to incorporate that many deals of the 200%. But again, it goes back to leveraging because the more that you're leveraging, the more property you're gonna be able to buy with the cash you're taking out of your first deal. But remember, when you do a 1031 exchange, and we're gonna talk about this in a moment, you are not having to spend 
what you paid off in your loan. You're having to spend your adjusted sales price. And so we're gonna talk about how you calculate that. So for people that own their properties completely in cash, it is a much harder to kind of complete this process than it is per se with someone with a loan. So let me give you an example. If you own a $200,000 property cash outright, you have to spend 200,000 again, and I'm using rough numbers, we'll talk about how you calculate the exact cost, but you've got to spend that again. So by the time you leverage at 50% down on two new properties, you've already spent your 200%. Whereas if you sell a $200,000 property and you owe 160 on it, you're walking away with 40 and it's a very different translation into being able to add more properties or say you owe 100 or whatever the situation may be. So in terms of 1031 exchanging in many ways, having a leveraged property is more beneficial than having a cash property. So a lot of people do cash out before they 1031 exchange if they own in cash. But Luann, is there a wait period if you're going to do that? You really should not cash out before, right before you close on the sale. It should be, that's like six months to a year. What would be better is if you bought in cash and then turn around and cash out refi after you buy. That would be safer. Yep. So I had a 1031 I was doing personally where I had a lot of cash carrying over and I, I procrastinated. I don't remember. I had some big deal working and I just, I had so many 1031s at a time. So I wound up contacting you guys the day of closing and saying, forget it, we're going to put all this money on this deal. And that's exactly what I did. I cashed out after the fact and then went back and bought more. And talking about cash outs and the tax benefits of that is a whole different class, but uh, it definitely can be done. Now, this is the other timeline that we see a lot. And in my business, we deal a lot in new construction. And so this is the one we have to be very cognizant of, that when you're buying pre-owned property, generally it's very easy to close in 180 days. But again, you have to close on the new replacement property or properties all by the 180th day. And it must be on that identification list. So if you exceed naming three properties, you must close on all of those properties. You can't exceed the 200% and you must close by day 180. If you're and that's triggered, sorry, that's triggered on the date of the settlement statement as well. Right. So it backtracks to the same day. And another question I get a lot is someone will identify a bunch of properties and then those blow up for whatever reason. So they come to me and they're like, hey, can you get me in something? I'm 100 days into my 1031 and my answer is no, because it was not identified on the original. So what That's I right. always tell people is if you are buying one property or two properties, throw an extra one on there. And often we have overflow properties that we are willing to sell that you can use as an over identification property. And that way, as long as you're not exceeding the three, you don't have to worry about buying them all. You just have to close on one of them, but it gives you a little bit of protection in case one blows. So one of the things that I see with this is someone's buying a pre-owned home, they identify it, they find it too late in their period, they get through inspections after the 45 days is up, you're out of luck if you back out. And so it almost puts you in between a rock and a hard place when you calculate the tax penalty you're gonna have versus the extra repairs you find a lot of people will choose to move forward at that point. So the goal is to get with someone who can work with you before that happens or just be knowledgeable of it so you can handle it yourself. That way you don't wind up stuck in that position because it's something that there, there's no gray in that. It is 100% absolute. So let's talk about titling because I get this question a lot. 
And there's a few different questions that go into play with this. Number one, does it have to be in the name of the person who sold it, the new property? Does it have to be like for like? And number two, what if the taxpayer is the same, but the title is different? So I'll let you address that. Um, so if two people are married, the question I get a lot is, I was single when I bought this house. Now I'm married. We want to take title in both of our names. Is that all right? And our answer is it should be if you filed jointly um, because you are in essence are one and the same. And we will, especially in Texas, but normally what we will do is send you back to your CPA to make sure they're on board. CPAs are kind of all over the board with this. But from our standpoint, you filed jointly the same taxpayer both taxpayer ids are on the title then you should be fine the other question we get is i'm going from single family to multifamily let's just say and they want me to form an llc um, how can i do that and the answer to that is you would form a disregarded entity that would mean that you're setting up the llc for liability purposes but in essence, it's going to flow through to your own personal taxpayer ID, which most of the time is going to be your social security number. Um, this, this example, I wish Dan were here. Um, so Sue and Fred are not married, and Fred wants to get on title right before she sails, sells. Dan would say she needs to dump Fred. He's taking advantage of her. But <laughs> <laughs> she, can she add Fred to title right before the sale? No, not and do a 1031 exchange. So she's going to eat all the gain and give Fred half ownership. But what she could do is she could sell and then she could buy in her taxpayer ID. And if she wanted to add Fred on after the fact and go forward tenant common, then she could do that. So let's talk about how we determine how much we have to spend. How do you determine what your 200% is based on? Well, the, the more complicated way to do it is to take debt relief as the amount of your note payoff. A lot of people think they don't have to factor that in, but they do. So I'll go back to our, let's go to a $300,000 sale. So let's say you have a note payoff of 150. So you take the 150 note payoff and you add the amount of cash that you get after your seller paid closing costs. And that's the amount that's going to go to the exchange. So whatever those two numbers add up to is your reinvestment goal. So let's just go with 130 cash after closing costs. So you have 150 note payoff, 130 cash. Your reinvestment goal is going to be 280,000 to totally defer the tax. And five hundred Pardon me. And then five hundred and sixty thousand would be your cap. For if you're going to identify more than no, actually six hundred would be your cap. It's so a the, sales price. So two hundred percent is based on sale price, Correct. and your actual minimum you must spend is based on your reinvestment goal. Yeah, and I like the easier way of a reinvestment goal. I just tell people they take their sales price and subtract their closing costs. And whatever that number equals out to is a reinvestment goal. The other thing to remember too is it can be multiple properties that add up to equal or greater than your reinvestment goal. So if you were at 280, that doesn't mean you have to buy a property at 280. It means you could buy one or two or three that add up to at least 280. 
And what happens if you have a few properties that you sell in a 1031, say you've got three single family homes and you wanna buy one fourplex with that and you satisfy the minimum on all of them, can that be done? It can be as long as you're aware that the timing of the deadlines are gonna start on the sale of the first. So you have to- so yeah, so you have to be pretty sure that you're going to get them all closed and um, bought by 180 days from the sale of the first. So I see this a lot when someone has a few single families together that they're sold as one package so that they have the same deadline for all. And so that would be a good example or listing at the same time and making sure that you try to stagger the closings as close together as possible. And so we do, we're seeing this a lot right now, especially with how high values on single families have got and the big push to get into small multifamily, but it definitely can be done. So now let's talk, about, let's talk about what you are, because I don't think a lot of people really know what that is. So what is a qualified intermediary? It's um, one of the rules of the exchange is that you use a totally independent third party to facilitate your exchange. Um, there is no licensing for exchange. You need to be with people who have the experience and the knowledge to know what they what they do, which we do. Um, so our job, we make sure that your funds are held secure as possible during the period of the exchange. In our case, they flow straight through to Fortis private bank in Denver, it's the bank that we use, they're held in a segregated account, meaning an account just for your exchange um, for the period of the exchange. So we work with title in the beginning. Like Leah said, we do a lot of handholding because it's scary the first time or a couple times you go through it. And then when you get ready to buy, we work with the title company, title company on the other end and work with you to make sure the numbers match up. And then, and Leah will attest to this, no money gets moved unless the signature of the client is on a wire authorization to move oh, forward. Yeah. And if you sign in the wrong place, they will call you nonstop until you fix it. <laughs> As I have learned personally. Bless Scott Rodley. <laughs> they really are great though. Occasionally I get so busy, I forget to notify them of one of mine closing until, I don't know, two hours before closing. And it's obviously not what they want to do, but just speaking to their customer service, they get it done. And so you got, really, you've got an amazing team behind you. We got 12 of them done today and over half of them were just like yours. But um, if possible on the purchases, we would like three days. That's that's our perfect world to get things done, but that we know also that that doesn't happen. Um, and it's it's more functioning at a you know kind of quicker time frame when there's not a lender involved. Generally, if you're working with a lender, the lender's got to have a final CV and everything reconciled to be able to draw docs and get to closing. So right. We already have everything on there. And sales we've done from the closing table, where somebody will walk into a title company and not realizing they need a QI. And they'll sit down and say, well, I want to do an exchange. So we'll get a call from title company to get them done. And we do get them done. Awesome. Um, and then, yes, questions, no charge on the consulting. Perfect. So now let's talk about the tax reform that just recently went into place. Um, well, up until 2018, we could do some really fun exchanges on personal property. They were very restrictive, but we could do them on aircraft and 
cars and yachts and artwork and musical instruments and even cows and bulls although if you sold cows you had to buy cows you couldn't buy bulls but um i in january of 2018 they eliminated all the personal property exchanges so they did not touch real estate we did not think they would um and we don't think they will ever but um yeah that's it so you can have to do it on real estate now no personal property so one of the things I want to pick your brain about, and you know, I like to do these very casual. And so sometimes I like to bring in what's going on in current events. So the last class we talked about was talking about opportunity zones and the potential risk with a presidency change of how that could affect opportunity zones, given some of the dialogue that we've heard from candidates about their disagreement with that. So my question to you is, have you or anyone in your organization heard anything about potential changes to the 1031 exchange system from some of these candidates and, and what's going on right now? Not yet, but we always do. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's been around since 1925 and is such an integral part in our economy and stimulating growth. You would you would hope that it would never get through and face it most people in the government in washington are big real estate owners so um i'm sure we, i see that, that i think could happen is the cap gains rate goes up and possible yeah and then your numbers are going to be even more impressive than what they are right now it'll be interesting to see as we get into the first debates, if 1031 exchanges come up. I've heard it mentioned a few times, but I haven't really heard any kind of solid plan of what they want to change other than cap gains, because, you know, we're the big bad real estate gurus. We need to be taxed more. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but, but we big bad real estate gurus don't need to have our deferment taken away, because then money yeah. will go elsewhere and that will hurt the whole economy. Completely agree. So it'll be interesting and we'll do a touch up just like we talked about with Opportunity Zones a couple weeks ago. We're going to do the same thing here as we start seeing some of the tax plans and things come up. We'll look at comparisons to see how it's going to change for us real estate investors as we move into whoever the next president's going to be. So now let's talk about what the point of all this is, is what do you do with properties sitting with equity? So the real question, number one, you bought right. You bought a good property, it's done exactly what you want it to do. You've got equity in it, either you've been paying it down for the last 10 or 20 years, maybe you inherited it, or maybe you capitalized on the appreciating market and you've got all this equity sitting there. So the, the age old question is, do you sit on that equity or do you 1031 and build your portfolio? And what I wanna look at is how that looks. So first, let's talk about the 1031 exchange benefits. Say you have one property and you bought this property for $120,000. And we're gonna use these same numbers as we go through our example. So you bought the property for 120, it's now worth 160,000. So you started with $24,000 down, assuming that you put 20% down. And I'm not putting closing costs in here because it just makes the numbers too confusing. But if you want me to do an exact example for you of a property you may currently own, then just reach out to me and I can do that for you property by property. So let's say you put the $24,000 down, your property's gone up $40,000 in extra equity. You've also paid down just a little bit of principal, let's say $2,000 in the time you've owned it. So if you 1031 exchange, 
and you sell that property after closing costs, et cetera, let's assume that you're walking away with $60,000. That's $60,000 that you're now bringing into a 1031 exchange. And with that $60,000, you can potentially turn that one property into two properties, potentially two and a half properties and build that portfolio. So let's look and see how that looks. So if we do that, we've doubled our depreciation, which is that tax incentive we talked about on your taxes. You've doubled your cash flow, and I'm gonna show you how that looks. You've doubled your principal payments, and this is a big thing that people don't think about. You know, most mortgages on a kind of regular priced property, you're gonna pay down one to $200 a month just in principal on top of your cash flow. And most investors don't look at that when they calculate their returns. So I've calculated it both ways for you. And then in addition to that, you've doubled your assets. So for those of you that want to get into bigger deals, you want to be able to do other types of leveraging or passive investing with multifamily or whatever, now you look a whole lot better on paper. So let's look at kind of the problem with this. You may have started with a reasonable amount of equity. So you only put $24,000 into the deal. So when you ran your numbers at that time, you paid say 120,000, you got 1200 in rent, everything looked great. What you haven't done is sat down and run the numbers now with all that cash sitting in that property. Because if you now have 65, $70,000 in equity in a house, that's cash that you could use elsewhere. That is part of your cash on cash return. So you need to rerun your numbers with that equity in there because it doesn't matter that you didn't put it into the deal, it's in there now. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that I see investors make is you don't calculate your return with the amount of cash you have tied up in a property because that equity sitting is cash tied up that could be distributed elsewhere. So here's an example that I run. So here is your $160,000 property with 40% equity. So that's your $64,000 in equity. And I'm gonna use the same property tax rate, I'm gonna use the same fees for a property we manage just to kind of give you a realistic idea or guide of how this could look. And so I picked the rent up a little bit over where the new buy-ins are gonna be, so $13.50 a month. And we're gonna talk about why, as the property value goes up, you also want to sell for the rent purpose too. I'm gonna talk about that in a few minutes, so just keep that in the back of your mind. But for right now, you've got this property bringing in $13.50 a month, it's worth, say, $160,000. So your return right now is just over 6%. And I'm not putting any repair cost in here because I don't know if you gutted the property, maybe you bought it new and it's under warranty, who knows? We're just looking at bare basic numbers. So your return's about 6%. And when you calculate in your mortgage pay down, and this is on a 30-year amortization at 4.5%, so I'm assuming that you're in a good interest rate. If your interest rate is higher, your return's even worse. So those of us that got in before rates got so low, your return's even lower than this but you're looking at a total all-in cash on cash return, somewhere around 9%. Now let's look at what happens if you take that property and you go buy two new at $140,000 each. So we bought a more expensive property, property value is a little bit higher. So instead of buying a property at 120, say you're spending 140. And these are the types of numbers that we deal with all the time. When I'm buying stuff, these are the type of numbers that I'm targeting. So we got the same property tax rate. I kicked the rent down to 1300 aside. Typically, I deal in new properties, so they tend to rent for a little bit more than some of the pre-owns, just on a price per foot basis. So let's say $1,300 aside, and this is your total all-in, so $280,000 purchase price. It's $140 a door, only 20% down, so we're utilizing that leveraging. That means your down payment is $56,000 plus your closing cost, so that's how you utilize about that $60,000, and you're taking a loan of $224. Now look at your return. So on the left side, Assuming that you're going with a new construction property, generally there's some period of time 
where your property taxes are reduced, and that's because it's at land-only value. So depending on the deal you buy depends on how long that period may be. And then on the right, it's telling you if they reassess that property tax at full purchase price, what is your cash flow going to be then? So I want you to look at what these returns are. So if you look at this cash flow on the right for this property, you're talking about pocketing somewhere around 477 a month. So for the same amount of money, if we go back to the last one, you're bringing in 321 a month. Now you're bringing in 477 a month. And on top of that, you've got twice as much principal pay down. And so the overall return is almost 14%. That's a huge, huge difference. Now let's also not forget, now you've got depreciation on two properties. So it's a very different scenario. And this is why we say that when we're looking at these properties where you're sitting with a lot of equity, it makes sense to 1031 and rebuy. Now, if we go back to this 40% example, what if you owned this in cash? Imagine how much even lower at that point your return would be. And so leveraging is the key to real estate success. I know there's a lot of people who say otherwise, but I can promise you that when you utilize leveraging as a regular everyday person, it's going to allow you to build a bigger portfolio and get closer to that retirement goal you're looking for or supplement goal than by owning in cash because the time it takes to be able to buy more is just too long, especially for many of us that get started later. And so this is a few more reasons that I kind of mentioned earlier, but when we look at rent increase, and I read a report on this not too long ago, that the kind of average rent increase that we see a year is somewhere just under 3%. So around 2.8, 2.9%. Now there are some areas like a lot of the new construction areas that we work in and some of the you know big heart of the city, you'll see more fluctuation in that because of just high growth and crazy increases right now with some of these areas. But generally I think right under 3% is pretty safe. So if your appreciation is happening at say 3%, then it's pretty even. But what about the years where we've seen 5, 10, 20% appreciation? So your rent is going up at a slower rate than what your value of that property is. And as your value goes up, your expenses go up. And so the insurance cost gets higher. Your property taxes get higher, not to mention your systems are aging and now we've got more repairs happening. And so there's this disparagement between your rent rate and your actual cash flow as that property goes up in value. And so in a stagnant market where there's you know, negative or no appreciation, okay, right, hold on to it. But in a market where we're still seeing at least some increase and in some growth, and specifically in like North Texas where everything's still going pretty crazy, it really doesn't make sense to sit in these properties so long because every year, assume that you even have just 5% growth a year. That's a 2% a year difference that you're losing because the rent's not going up as fast as the value. And that's how we have properties that are two or $3,000 a month that may be worth half a million dollars. And this is exactly why investors get out of California and out of New York, because you can't get close enough to that 1% rent return rate. And so the longer you own that house in a good market, the harder that's gonna become. I mentioned briefly the reduced tax fees in the beginning of ownership, and that can happen either due to buying new construction where it's assessed at land-only value, or it can happen because you bought a property that needs a lot of work. I've got a contract package right now for eight properties I'm buying in Collin County, and they're, they're far under-assessed, and that's because of their condition. The tax assessor drives by, they look at the exterior condition, they say it's fair, and it causes a huge hit on your tax value. 
And so you go in, you fix it up. It may not be a year, two, three years before they realize it and they come in and they increase that tax value. So there can be some incentives to going into new properties that pertains to the property taxes too. And for those of you that have owned in Texas for a long time, you know those property taxes make a big difference. The benefit of Texas is we don't have that state income tax, but we do have property taxes. And so as that value goes up, it makes a big difference to your cash flow. It can be the difference of two to $300 a month, depending on the price point of your property. Now, to my final real kind of point, my preference is always to be in the nicest cheap property you can find. Couple reasons, number one, the more expensive the property, again, rent doesn't go up at the same rate. So a $3,000 property per month is not gonna be worth $300,000 in those cases. But I certainly can get two closer to $150,000 in value and get closer to $1,500 a month each. So by having multiple cheaper properties to equal the amount of one more expensive property, we're typically gonna have a much better cash flow and a much better cash on cash return. And then, as I mentioned earlier, aging systems means more money for repairs. And so the older those systems get, maybe you did put new water heater, new you know, HVAC, you did the foundation work. Well, now you've owned it for 10 years. Those systems are due for replacement again. And so that's something to keep in mind, too, because, again, you've got to look at the whole picture. You've got to look at the cash you have in the deal. You've got to look at what repairs could potentially be coming up. That carpet's getting old. The paint's getting old. You can only hold a tenant responsible so long for so much. So although we do everything we can to hold our tenants accountable, that carpet's 10 years old. We can't build them to replace it. So that's kind of my two cents on this whole process and why we recommend the 1031 so heavily. I've put all Luann's information here for you. And of course, you can reach out to her or I with any questions. And then real quick, there's a chat window. If you have any questions you'd like to go through, before we finish up here, go ahead and put those down and we will answer those. Loanne, thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure and it's our true pleasure. fun. <laughs> so I appreciate it. And again, if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to send us an email and then we'll get this posted to YouTube by the end of the week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Leah.